last week during the message, I, I presented seven questions that I wanted us to consider this week as we were to look at what is it that is truly driving us? What is it that is truly controlling our lives? One of the questions that I propose that we ask ourselves is, for what do we want to be known? As we look over the course of our life, what is it that when people look at us that we want to know, this is what I am known for? It's a personal question. It digs into knowing what is it that we truly value? What is it that's truly important to us? Well, today I want to go a step further, and I want to look at the question from a, instead of an individual perspective, but from a church-wide perspective. What is it that we collectively as a church family, what do we want to be known for when people think of First Baptist Church Decatur? What is it that we hope they say, this is what I think of when I think of First Baptist Church Decatur? It's my hope that we want to be known for more than simply being an institution. It's my hope that we want to be known more than just for this beautiful facility that we have, an address where we meet, even a gathering of a group of people. I hope it's okay. I'm going to move this. I hope that we want to be known more for simply um, the great things that we've done in our past. And we've done some incredible things, and God has accomplished some incredible things in our past. But my deepest hope is that we as a church family, that we want to be known as a dynamic movement of God. You say, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a dynamic movement? To be a dynamic movement says that we want to be known for the impact that we are making first and foremost right here in the community where God has placed us. It extends beyond that where it begins that we want to be known for the impact that we're making here for the gospel here in Decatur and surrounding areas. And it extends all the way to, to how are we making an impact around the world according to the kingdom of God. The passage that we're going to be reading is in Acts chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go ahead and, and flip to the book of Acts. If you're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you'll be in Acts, the eighth chapter. And we are going to see that Luke, who is the author of Acts, is going to paint an incredible picture of what it means for a church to be a dynamic movement. After we see this, we're also going to see in the last four verses, in verses 5 through 8, what it means to live out the gospel in our daily lives. So in honor of the reading of God's Word, let's stand together as we look at Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen in front of you. Hear the words from the book of Acts, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they, all, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
I want to take this passage that we have just read together, verses 1 through 8, and I want to divide it into to two separate sections. The first section includes the first four verses, and I want us to see what does it mean to be a movement. And then the last four verses, verses 5 through 8, how, do, according to this passage, are we to live out the gospel in our daily lives? Now, understand that second section, this is not going to be an all-inclusive list of here of all the ways that we're supposed to live out the gospel, but according specifically to verses 5 through 8. So let's start with what it means to be of movement. The very first phrase that's used there in Acts chapter 1 says that, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, in order to understand chapter 8, you have to have read chapter 7, or if you were with us last week, and you remember it's a direct um, connection with what happened in Acts chapter 7, where we saw the very first murder of a Christian because of his faith. We call that term a martyr. His name was Stephen, and Stephen was stoned to death simply because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And because of that, he was stoned to death. And what we see here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, is that Saul is mentioned by name as being there giving what? Giving approval to his death. Now, it's important to recognize that because Saul is the only name that is mentioned as who is a part of that group. We have groups of people that are mentioned, but Saul is the only name that's mentioned as there giving approval to his death. Now, next week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 as we conclude our series on Acts, and we're going to see how Saul later becomes Paul, and God radically converts him. He radically transforms his life on the road to Damascus, and we're going to see how Saul moves from being a, a destroyer of the church to a builder and a person who's advancing the, the local church there. But what we see here in Acts chapter 8 is that there is something that happened at the stoning of Stephen that Saul just can't let go. There's something that happened back there in chapter 7 that it's still in his mind and he can't quite shake what happened there. Saul didn't participate that we know of. Scripture doesn't say or Luke doesn't tell us that, that Saul even threw one single stone, but what it does say is that he was there giving approval to his death. As you continue on, you get to verse 3. We learn that Saul wasn't just participating in the persecution of the church, that Saul actually, he transitioned to a, a period of leadership, that he was leading the destruction of the church. In the ESV translation that I just read, verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church. In essence, Saul's vision, his driving purpose that we talked about last week, his purpose was to stamp out Christianity. It was to destroy the advancement of these followers of Jesus who were taking the message of Jesus and teaching all that he had done, all the miracles that he had shared, and they thought it, he thought it was his goal to destroy the church. So in verse 1, we read that, that the apostles decide that they are going to stay in Jerusalem. They felt it was still God's call upon their life to continue to spread the gospel as God had given them incredible success, as you see thousands upon thousands who had trusted Jesus as Savior. They say, we're going to stay here, but they know they can't stay above ground because of this persecution that occurs. So they go what we would call today underground. You've heard the term used underground Christians where they have to be secret in their worship. So they, in essence, they go underground, but all the other followers of Jesus Luke says that they what? They scatter, that they flee from Jerusalem and they end up taking the gospel to other parts of, of the region. Do you see the irony here? 
The irony is, is that through Saul and through the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the persecution, what was the intent? The intent of this persecution was it was finally going to destroy the church. We are going to take all the advancement that we have seen, these followers of Jesus have, have been successful in doing, and we're going to persecute them so we can destroy the church. But what was the result? The result was it actually strengthened the church. The result was that God used this persecution not to end the advancement of the gospel, but actually he uses it to be part of the advancement of the gospel to move from Jerusalem into the other parts of the area. I love the way that Tony Marita, a pastor, he writes about this in one of his books, and he says this quote. He says, while suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is unstoppable. See, here, here, here's what happens. Do you remember when we were um, beginning this series and we said that the theme of all of, of Luke, I mean of, of Acts, would be found in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus, before he ascends back to heaven, he tells the disciples, listen, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit, the advocate, the comforter is going to come and be your guide and he is going to empower you so that you can take the gospel to Jerusalem where they, where they were hated. Then you're going to take it to Judea, then Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And what we see happening right here is this is about to come to fruition. They've been in Jerusalem and now they're about to take it to Judea and Samaria. Now I have to wonder that when the disciples heard this from Jesus, could this have been what they were expecting? Don't you think they were thinking, oh, this is going to be some grand plan? Surely they weren't thinking, oh, it's through harm. It's through persecution. It's through hardship. That's how the gospel is going to be spread to the other areas. But look what happens as a result of them scattering. Verse 4, it says, here's what happens as they scatter out from Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The key there is it says, now those who were scattered. That means everyone. That means all those who were followers of Jesus that had been committed to following Jesus, that had learned his word, that were following what he was teaching, they all took it as their responsibility to go throughout and to preach the word. Now understand that when we say that word, that they preach the word, it's probably not the same way that, that you and I today think of the word preached. Whenever we say the word preach, sometimes you think it's the public um, teaching, the pro public proclamation of God's word. That's what I'm doing right now, and that is part of it. But what he meant here when it says the disciples, the apostles, they went about preaching the word of God. It's the word that actually means to tell others about Jesus. It's the word that we would say it's to evangelize. It's one disciple of Jesus, one person that had been transformed by the, the life of Jesus going to another person and telling them the story, here's what happened to me. So he, here's what's probably happened. In Jerusalem, most of these followers of Jesus, I happen to believe they probably went to church on a regular basis. And as these followers of Jesus, as they come to church, they, they hear the word of God taught to them over and over again. And probably they didn't just hear it with their ears, but they hid God's word in their heart. And so now as they are scattered, they no longer can come together and hear the word publicly proclaimed because even those that are in Jerusalem have now gone underground. They have taken what they have learned. They have taken what they've heard, what they've hidden in their heart. And now they are going to share it with others and the church is now going to grow even through the persecution. 
See, the persecution, when it happened, it pushed the believers outside of the church. But as that happened, as the followers of Jesus, as they're pushed out of the church, they took what they had learned and they went out and they shared the gospel. If you were here last Sunday, they did what? They ran the play, right? They had heard it proclaimed time and time again, and now it's time for them not just to sit and soak, but now it's time for them to go out and to share what they had been taught. Who did this? Was it just the professional Christians that go out and share the word? Was it just those that had, had been eyewitnesses of Jesus' account that walked with, were they the only ones that were preaching and sharing about Jesus? No. It says everyone went out. Everyone who was a follower of Jesus, they understood that it was now part of their mission to go out and to share what they had been taught. You see, friends, the church here today, if I was to refer to this today, our local church is not supposed to be a body of believers where there's a small percentage of people who go out and do a, a large percentage of the kingdom plan and the rest of us just sit and soak and we're beneficiaries of the ministry that takes place. That's not God's purpose of the church. It's just for a few to go out and do what God calls them to do and the rest of us just to sit here and be consumers. What we see happening in Acts chapter 8 is God, he actually used the persecution to turn the church into an entire community of people. They went from being a group of individuals and now they're a community of people and they see that they are now going to use whatever God has equipped them with. Maybe it's a personality. Maybe it's a, a gift that they have. Maybe it's a sphere of influence that they have. Whatever God has gifted them with, they now understand that every follower of Jesus, they are part of the mission. It's not they go out and do, it's we go out and we're a part of what God is doing. Every follower of Jesus in Acts chapter eight, every follower of Jesus that had been touched by the gift of salvation, they understood that it was their responsibility to go and share the gospel with the people to whom God had put in their path. So let's go back to today. How do we refer this to our church here at First Baptist in Decatur? Friends, if we want to see our church move from being just an institution, if we want to transition even from being an institution into a gathering, if we want to move even further, if we want to transition to being a dynamic movement, watch what happens when every single follower of Jesus who is a local member of this church sees it as their responsibility. It's our responsibility to go out and be a part of what God is doing, not for us to simply say, well, I'm paying my dues so the professional Christians, they can go out and do God's kingdom work. That's how we will transition from being a, a, just an institution or a group that does some good things. We want to see revival take place. We want to see God do an incredible work through this church. We can't do this by just a few people participating in this. It happens when we understand we are all gifted with the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are all equipped. We have a role to play in the kingdom plan. You see this all throughout the Bible. There's one instance I want to point out to you. In Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I love you so much. I want you to come near. I'm going to draw near to you. I want to use you. I want to make your name great. I want to bless your family. Can you imagine the God of creation personally saying that to you? But then in the same breath, he doesn't end with that. 
He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to draw near to you so that, what? You will go out and be a blessing to others. Genesis 12, verse 2, here it is. And I, this is God speaking, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. Hard to get better than that. I'm going to make you a great nation. But he goes on, he said, and then I'm going to bless you. Wow, this is incredible. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And the third thing is that I'm going to make your name great. But don't miss the last part. Here's why I'm going to do these things through you. So that you will be a blessing. Friends, hear me on this. God never calls you. God never blesses you. God never fills you in your heart with love except so that you can take the blessings that he has given you and you will go out and you will bless others. It's not for your own personal benefit. God hasn't blessed us, whether it's financially, whether it's relationships, whether it's sphere of influence. God hasn't blessed you just so you can feel good about yourself and you can hold them to yourself. He has blessed us so that we can go out and bless others. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. Now, it's not necessarily the blessing that you and I think of. It's not the blessing and that, oh, all these good things are happening, but he's blessing them, so to speak, with persecution because persecution is going to do what? It's going to unite them. It's going to give them that eternal mindset that this world has so much more to do than what I can accomplish here on this earth about all the, the things that I can gain for myself. But through this persecution, I understand that God has a role for me to play in his kingdom plan. And God is going to use even persecution to unite his people so that every person can understand they have a role to play. One pastor said, you know, it's interesting. It's the advancement of the church, the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts. It didn't take place as after a five-year strategic plan where a committee got together and came up with, here's how we're going to happen, and here I'm going to put, that's not how God worked, is it? It's hard for me to admit I'm a type A personality. I kind of wish it did, you know, but that's not how God does those things. What caused the expansion of Christianity? What was the, 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 the catalyst that God used to take the gospel and expand it past Jerusalem? Here it is. It was ordinary believers like you and me who took the opportunity to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they went. Luke chapter 4. Common, uneducated men. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, not a professional, a layperson that God used to advance the gospel. And I was, as I was preparing this message, I began to think of some of the incredible ministries that take place in and through our church. And as I began to think about these ministries, I realized that most of them, if not all of them, didn't take place because the pastor had some great plan. It didn't take, they didn't take place because a group of ministers or, or even deacons got together and said, here's a ministry, we need, let's, let's take it happen. No, no, no. You know why these ministries happened? Because there was a layperson. Someone like you sitting in the pews that God gave a burden for their life to count for more than just their own benefit, and they were obedient to follow through. Ministries, let me just list a few. Ministries like First Assist. The Backpack Ministry, Belize, Haiti, East Acres, Seize the Brain, Haiti Seas, just to name a few. All of these ministries that I just mentioned, they were started by lay people who said, God, you gave me this idea. You put this idea in my heart. I want to be obedient to you. I want to invest my life in something that's greater than myself. 
And here, here's the thing about these ministries at First Baptist. It's the same pattern that we see happening in, in Acts. Most of them occurred with a sense of spontaneity. Again, that pains me to say as a type A personality. But these ministries weren't orchestrated. How did they start? It started with one act of obedience, followed by another act of obedience, followed by the next step of obedience. Isaiah would say it starts with open hands saying, Lord, here am I, send me. That we would be faithful to the call. And in Acts chapter 8, the apostles, they don't send Philip to Samaria as part of this strategic plan, do they? They didn't meet in this huddle and say, okay, we're going to come up with this plan, and Philip, you're going to go to Samaria, and as a result of that, the church, the church is going to expand all throughout Judea and Samaria. Philip simply goes to Samaria. Why? Because God told him to. And he takes that step of obedience, and as a result of that, what we see is God is going to use the persecution that occurs to turn the church into a movement in which every person understands they are part of the mission. Everyone eventually is engaged. Now, let me take a time out here for just a second. Let me just give you some harsh but true reality here. Most of the times when a church shifts its focus, most of the time when a local church, when they're going to shift their priorities from transitioning from being a what's in it for me mentality into a movement in which every person says, I'm part of God's kingdom plan, most of the time that only happens as a result of tragedy. Most of the time, this shift in focus or this shift in values, it happens as a result of difficulty or hardship. Why is that? Because it usually takes something terrible to occur for the church to say, we're not going about things in the right way. Maybe we need to rethink this specific area or this specific ministry. See, a church is not naturally drawn towards what I would call and what many people would call revitalization. Why does a church not drift towards that? Because it requires that we are going to have some serious reflection of what's important to us. What are our priorities? We're going to seriously reflect on how are we investing God's finances, not ours, but how are we investing this to further the kingdom? How are we investing the time of our congregation to most effectively Share the gospel. It's not saying we want to change just to be relevant. We want to change just because of change we need to happen because we don't need to be the same as we were in the 70s or 80s. It's saying that we want to make sure that we are being as effective as possible in carrying out the word of God. And friends, that's where I hope that we are as a church. I hope that we're always that way. That we don't wait until tragedy strikes. We don't wait until hardship strikes. Say, where do we go off course? But we are constantly reevaluating and constantly saying, God, open our hearts. Give us your mind. Give us your vision so that we can say that we poured out all that we had so that your gospel could be shared as effectively as possible right here first in our local community and then throughout the world. We want to be a dynamic movement. Then we are saying, God, how can we be faithful to you. That's the first four verses that we see. That's what it means to be a, a movement. And then in the last four verses, in verses five through eight, we see how to live out the gospel in our daily lives. The first thing that we see, it's found in verse five. It's that the word is proclaimed. Look at verse five. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip, he proclaims the gospel. He shares it with others. 
When I was in high school, my favorite quote was by a man by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. Many of you may know him. And the quote went something like this. Preach always, and if necessary, what? Use words. Now, what he meant by that quote was, allow your life to be the sermon that you preach, that your actions match, and continue to use your words to preach the gospel. But I took that quote, and I thought, man, here's the crutch that I'm going to live on in high school and for most of all through college. And I would say, oh, well, okay, all I need to do is live a God-honoring life. All I need to do is just continue to be faithful in my walk, to continue to go to church, and then use it as an excuse to not use my words and say, well, I'm preaching it with my lifestyle. I don't have to use my words. By the way, that's not his intent in that quote. But I think a better way to say that might be this. Preach always with your lifestyle and be sure to use your words too. Don't leave out those words. But here's the thing. You cannot proclaim the word. You can't teach the word to other people if you first and foremost don't know the word. And I'm not saying you know the word because you came to Sunday school or church every other week. I'm saying that you know the word because you are, are, are digesting his word. You, are, you have a daily time, a daily appointment that you meet before God. And you say, God, I want you to reveal and teach me your word so that I know your word, that I'm hiding it in my heart so that when those difficult times come, when that person comes to me and says, I, I want a divorce, I'm going through this difficult time, this is what's going on in my life, I'm thinking about making this mistake, that then you know God's word so well, it's part of who you are, that it just overflows out of your mouth. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So maybe instead of saying that, uh, that the first goal of my life is to share the word of God, maybe for some of us, it's I want to make the word of God important in my life. And I'm going to make that a priority that I'm going to study God's word. The second thing that we can see as far as living out um, the gospel in our daily lives is it's in our actions. Acts 8, verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame, they were what? They were healed. So people, they were, they were delivered from evil as a result of the actions of the apostles. Now, right here, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, of course they were. They were able to do miracles. If I could do miracles, I would go around healing people and, and having unclean spirits come out and lame people that could have, I, I would do that too. Don't get distracted by that. There are plenty of times all throughout the New Testament that God used followers of Jesus by their actions to get people to be drawn towards Christ. One example we studied a few weeks ago, Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, it says, All the apostles, the disciples, they had everything in common, and they made sure that there was not a needy person among them. And as they did that, as they shared with one another, it says that the city of Jerusalem, that they noticed the way that Christians loved Christ one another. They took note of how they cared for one another. And as a result, those that weren't followers of Christ, they were drawn to Christ because of their actions. Friends, listen to me. People will listen to our words, but they first must see our deeds. They're not going to listen to your words if your actions and your deeds don't match the way that you live. I've told you this time and time again, and you're probably sick of hearing me say it, but I'm going to say it again. One of my favorite quotes that my granddad taught me, and I'm sure he didn't come up with it. He said, Blake, you believe what you do. The rest are just words. You can say you believe all you want, but if you really believe it, you are going to do it. 
And the final thing that we see in these four verses as far as living out the gospel in our daily lives is, is racial reconciliation. And right here, you're looking at the Bible and you're saying, where in the world, how are you getting racial reconciliation as far as the gospel being a part of our daily lives? That's where context comes into, into play here. See, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated one another. There was a tremendous amount of hatred between these two groups of people. Remember the shock of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? Remember the story of the good Samaritan? What was the shocking part of that story? That the Samaritan would actually take time to care for the Jewish person there. See, friends, listen to me. Here's the thing about racism. And it's as true today as it was in the first century. Whenever racism occurs, there's usually a combination of superiority and inferiority. There's a group of people or maybe an individual that feels like there's something in and of themselves that makes them superior, that makes them better than someone else. I think it's only somewhat natural for us to have this innate desire to feel better than someone else. Because if we feel better about ourselves by, by belittling someone else, well, then that makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Because we're better than them and at least we're not doing what they're doing. By the way, this occurs for more than just racism, by the way. We can feel superior by which side of town we live on, can't we? We can feel superior by which school our kid goes to. We can feel superior based on what clothes we wear or what car we drive. We can feel superior based on whether or not we went to college or someone else that we know didn't go to college. But here's the thing. When the gospel comes into our lives, what the gospel does is it works on both our feelings of superiority and our feelings of inferiority. Here's why. Because friends, when you understand the message of Jesus, when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what you understand. I understand that I was in utter darkness. I was dead in my sin. I was separated from God. I was, according to Romans, an enemy of God. There was nothing in and of myself that could draw me close to God. I was dead in my sin. There is no way that I can have this sense of superiority. I feel completely inferior because there's nothing in me that could be drawn drawn to God. And if the story ended there, it'd be terrible news. But the gospel says, but then God in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who even in your sin, he came and he willingly chose to lay down his life to die, not because of his, he was guilty, not because of anything wrong that he had done, but he died in your place. He paid the penalty for your mistakes. He died for your sins so that you could be redeemed and so that we lose any sense of inferiority that we have because we admit, we throw our hands up and say, God, there's no way I could earn it. I don't understand how a follower of Jesus could actually, when they understand what God has done for them, how we could feel superior to any group or any individual. When we understand the gospel, when we understand how separated we were from him, how in the world can we feel like we're better than anyone else? My hope and prayer is that it will break our hearts for those that don't know the gospel. Let's don't forget that it was Christians it was the church that was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. I hope and pray that we as Christians will have broken hearts for those who feel like they are still living in, in, in a culture that is, there's injustice and there's racism. 
And hear me on this. This is not a political statement. This is a gospel statement that we look at individuals, that we look at as a group of people, and we look beyond the issues of today, and we see them as individuals that have an eternity, that have an an eternal soul that will spend somewhere either in heaven or hell. And I hope that our heart breaks for people the way that God's heart is drawn towards people. This isn't a right or left issue. This is that we are people of God, and we must see them as God sees them. In verses one through four, what we see is it's led to destruction and death. But only the gospel, only God can take verses one through four and turn it around in verses five through eight. What do we see? It leads to life in the last eight chapter, um, verse eight, it says, and then they were filled with joy. How did this happen? In verses one through four, Saul, he's attempting to scatter the church through persecution. What's the result in verse five through eight? The result is the, the persecution united them in heart and mission. In verses one through four, Saul's goal, it was to kill the church, to stamp out the church once and for all. What's the result? Verse five and eight, the result was it actually gave the church more life. How did this happen? I think it's a direct result of what happened in Acts chapter seven. The way in which Stephen died, that he looked at his accusers, even in the face of death. And this is what it says in Acts seven, verse 60. And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he heard this, and when he had said this, excuse me, he fell asleep. I happen to believe that it was Stephen's death, not just that he died, but the manner in which he died, that it emboldened Christians. It empowered the Christians to go and to take this message and to scatter it throughout Judea and Samaria. See, friends, the same pattern has been seen over and over again, even up to this very day. Let me tell you what the pattern is. Here's the pattern. The pattern is the greater the persecution, the greater the trampling of Christians, it doesn't lead to violence in return. Not for those who are following Jesus. Instead, what does it lead to? It leads to greater love and joy. It's hard to imagine a more closed country or a more persecuted country towards the gospel than China. After World War II, the Chinese Communist government decided that they were going to ask all, or not ask, force all of the Christian missionaries to leave the country. They were going to find all of the Christian pastors that were Chinese and they were going to kill them. And once and for all, they thought, now we have killed Christianity here in our country. The opposite happened. Those who were Christians there in China, they saw it as their responsibility to take the gospel and to continue. Now they saw we are part of the mission and we are to share the gospel. Because what happens when you persecute the church? It only makes it grow, right? And by the way, it's estimated that since that happened after the end of World War II, when they kicked out all the missionaries, they, they killed the Christian pastors, it's estimated that the Christian church has grown 50-fold since that time. Let me bring this in for a landing. I've tried to always end each message in the series with a, a personal application. Uh, okay, that's great. I understand what happened back then. How does this apply to my life today? Let me just speak honestly with you today. Most everyone in here, you entered this room this morning with a list of questions that you can't answer. A list of, of why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? And if I'm extremely honest and transparent with you, I can't give you an answer for a lot of those questions. I can't answer the why. 
And even if I did, it wouldn't meet your satisfaction. But here's my encouragement to you today. Instead of trying to answer these unanswerable questions, what if we shifted our mindset? What if we said, God, I want to take this dark season of my life and I want you to teach me about your grace. I want you to allow me to shine my light even in the darkness because you and I know that our light shines even brighter in the darkness. See, God's on a big mission here. Louis Giglio says that God paints on an incredibly big canvas and we're right here, this is all we can see. We don't know what part we are playing in God's kingdom plan and, and I hate to tell you this, but it's true. The universe doesn't revolve around you. God created you and me to play a part in his kingdom plan. I don't think that Stephen had any clue that his death would lead to the advancement of the gospel all around the world. He didn't have to know. He simply was going to be obedient in each and every moment that, where God led him. See, let me just help you understand. You may never on this side of eternity understand the why of certain questions. But what you can do is you can let your light shine in the midst of that pain and darkness. Let me encourage you to try this as we leave. What if you tried this? Just, just try it for this week. What if instead of praying, God, make it better. God, fix it. What if you prayed, God, Make it count. God, my friend is dying of cancer. God, everything within me is screaming out, God, make her better. God, if it's your will, will on this side of eternity, heal her of cancer. We believe that you're able. But what if we prayed, God, don't let her suffering go to waste. God, don't let her miss what you are teaching her even in the midst of this suffering. God, I'm exhausted. I am stressed out. I don't even know where to turn. Everything within us, when we are stressed, when we're exhausted, cries out that we want to go before God and say, God, just remove this season of pain. Remove this turmoil in my life. Take this stress away. But instead, what if we said, God, make this season count in my life. Teach me that your grace is sufficient. Teach me to depend fully on you, even in the midst of this. God, if you're not going to take it away, make it count in my life. God, my kids are suffering. God, my kids are hurting. And everything within me says, God, make it better. God, get rid of that bully in his life. God, do what you can to take this learning disability away in his life. God, do whatever you need to. Just take it away. Make it better, God. But what if our prayer was, God, even in the midst of this season, don't make it, don't make it for nothing. Let my son, let my daughter understand that his worth and his identity, even in the midst of this tragedy, is found in you. Make it count for eternity. What if we prayed, God, as Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions that if we're honest with ourselves, they don't feel so light and momentary while we are here on this earth. What if we pray, God, don't just make it better. 
don't just make it better. Make these days count so that I, as a result of going through this tragedy, as a result of going through this persecution, going through this hardship, where I feel like I'm just running up against a brick wall, make it count so as a result, when I'm on the other side, I look more like Jesus. Make it count today. What if that was our prayer? I happen to believe God would honor that prayer. Happen to believe that's the prayer of an honest heart that doesn't deny the hardship, doesn't deny the difficulty of what they're going through, but says, God, give me your perspective. Don't let me miss what you're teaching me, even in the midst of this. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the incredible example that we have from the first Christians who followed you even in the midst of the face of death that did not distract or deter them from the eternal vision that you placed within their heart. Lord, I pray more than anything right now that you would give our church, every person that's a member of this church that claims to be a follower of your son, would you give us an eternal perspective that we would understand it's so much more than what we see in front of our lives and would we make our lives count not for today but for eternity. Don't let us miss the opportunities that you are putting in front of us today to make an impact. Don't let us miss the people that you have put in our path, not so that we could just have friends, not so we could just have coworkers, but you have divinely put them in our path so that we might show them through the joy of our own lives what it means to follow you. Lord, would you empower your church? Would you give us a sense of a broken heart for those who don't know you? Lord, we don't want to continue just to continue on as if this is just some game where we wake up on Sundays and get dressed up and come to church and then we go home and the rest of our lives, don't, they're not impacted. Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision that we would see how we can be a part, every single one of us, of your kingdom plan. Lord, in the midst of every situation that we're going through, I know that every single person here wants to pray, God, make it better. God, remove this difficulty, but would we this week turn it over to you? Would we trust you that you are never gonna waste a, a, a tear, a difficulty, an ounce of pain won't be wasted if we turn it over to you? And would you use it for your glory in a way that only your gospel can do? I thank you for your love and I thank you for your grace that empowers us each and every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.